Welcome, Jeremy and Garrick. Thanks so much for joining us. The value of all stable coins in issuance recently surpassed the $10 billion mark and trebled since the start of the year. We started out with fiat-backed tokens to support crypto trading and evolved to payments to trading on, of non-digital assets. And now we're talking about the digital dollar in the Senate yesterday. What has accounted for such rapid growth? Jeremy? Well, it's, it's been really interesting. Um, we've seen uh, with, with US dollar coin, USDC, since um, basically correlated pretty closely to the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, a, a pretty dramatic uh, growth in um, every major metric around, um, around the center USDC stablecoin. So we've seen the uh, amount in circulation grow by um, well over 100%. Uh, to it's just just a hair shy of one billion USDC in circulation. We've seen the the amount of issuance and redemption overall. So people kind of using it as a rail coming in and out, growing very very fast. And and then you know other metrics like the number of wallets using it, on chain transaction volumes, all, all these have continued to to move pretty steadily. And um, it, it correlates. Um, the correlation to COVID, I think, is striking in, in a few ways. So I think the first is um, we obviously saw with the outbreak, um, you know, the, the sort of global economic crisis unfolding as well and a, a rapid shift into dollars as a safe haven asset, historical safe haven asset. And digital dollars are, are in some ways also um, they're, 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 they're also a safe haven asset, although they have some attributes that I think make them particularly attractive um, in global markets. Um, you know, when you think about a dollar today, um, if you have a dollar in a commercial bank account, that's a fractional reserve dollar. So it's a dollar that is, um, you know, being lent out over and over. And so if you have questions about, say, the potential for solvency risk in, in, in households or firms, uh, and, and in turn, what that might mean for solvency risk of financial institutions, um, the fra fractional reserve money is, is, is challenging. We've seen that in multiple crises. So we, we've sort of staved off a financial crisis for now, uh, but uh, as this unfolds, there is that risk. And I think it's very easy when we think about dollars to think about, oh, well, I've got Bank of America or I've, I've got a Chase account. That's the United States. Dollarization is a global theme. It's about Latin America, Africa, South Asia, uh, other parts of the world where they do not have the firepower of the Fed. They do not have the, the fiscal means to uh, counteract the incredible destruction that the pandemic's having on their economies. So Garrick, uh, you just published the first part of a three-part paper on the digital dollar where you talk about the change in sentiment from central banks towards the idea um, has been very rapid. And we know that Libra was a starting gun and, and has been fast-tracked by COVID. But you also say that most people don't understand the difference between commercial and central banks. Can you talk a little bit more about that and your article? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, commercial bank money and central bank money has been uh, a, a challenging topic for, I think, many people to understand for as long as I've been teaching. I, I mentioned you know, that I bring this up regularly over the last 10 years in lectures to executives. 
and financial services companies even who who understand uh, that you know the coins in our pockets, the banknotes in our pockets are minted by central banks and governments, but don't appreciate how much of the total money supply is actually manufactured uh, by commercial banks when they make loans. That uh, is where the vast majority of money comes from. And so there's a real economic education gap uh, you know, around the topic of money, which has uh, you know, been a huge challenge for helping people to understand crypto assets like Bitcoin through the years, but also is gonna be a huge challenge for engaging the broader general public on this question of a, a digital dollar, uh, you know, kind of an expansion of central bank digital currency. We already have central bank digital currency. It's just not widely available to, to you, know, uh, you know, people like me in the streets. Uh, commercial banks and foreign governments get to hold accounts at the New York Fed, but I can't walk in and set up my own personal bank account at the New York Fed like maybe I could with a digital dollar. And that's um, I think a huge issue, like how well understood is this issue, not just across the general public, but as we've seen, and Jeremy can attest to this, I know he's gone in front of Congress, uh, we've got a, a, a technology challenge as well, uh, you know, in explaining how some of these, uh, you, know, uh, you know, blockchain technologies and, and programmability of currency and so on and so forth, the various benefits you would gain with a digital dollar, what, what are those benefits? How is that different from Thing like, things like Fed, Fed Now, the faster payment system the Fed's going to be rolling out uh, at some point. So there's a huge education challenge. And, and, and really, I think it all starts with understanding that there's big differences between central bank currency, which you can think of uh, from a retail perspective as the coins and banknotes in your pocket, and commercial bank money, which is when you look up your, your account balance uh, in, in online banking, what, what's, what's the bank showing you have? That's commercial bank money. That is bank manufactured money that is lent into existence and it has different properties uh, around settlement finality and other characteristics uh, than central bank money. So uh, we've got a lot of work to do uh, on the education side for sure. I'd like to think, think, I want to just comment on something you said, Garrett, which is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that, um, you know, you know, sort of uh, private sector actors um, who innovate with software are going to create experience products and services and experiences that um, hundreds of millions and billions of people um, fall in love with. <laughs> and that's actually just going to be the education. So given the speed of the digital dollar now, uh, do you think that the government would work with private sectors or existing stablecoin technology to accelerate that process? I, I think so. I mean, and, and it really depends on, on where you are around the world. There, there are a couple of key things to, to state on this. Um, so the, the first is that the, you know, the, the largest scale global regulatory um, response to this problem space um, is specifically to come up with a, a set of policy frameworks for um, working with the private sector. Um, the, the G20, which is, you know, the collection of the 20 most uh, largest economies in the world, the financial ministers and key regulators of the G20, the Financial Stability Board, have been hard at work for the last year building a set of uh, policy guidelines for G20 members for how to regulate um, global stablecoin arrangements. They're not sitting around saying, how do we create a, a, a digital currency? They're saying the private sector is, is here, 
the private sector is innovating. And we just want to make sure that um, when these products and services are brought to market at scale, as they are beginning to, and, in, and certainly in 2021, we expect to see these reach hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, um, make sure that they're, they're handled safely. And so I think that's exactly what's happening is the public sector is very actively working with the private sector, including the U.S. government, including international governments around the world to figure out how to make this work. And so, um, so the, the, the dominant theme today is public-private co co coordination, and that's happening through the FSB. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. And then I would just say, even just more domestically in the United States, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the U.S. Treasury uh, and the, the key uh, you know, banking regulator of the U.S. Treasury, the OCC, that oversees national bank and national bank charters, uh, Brian Brooks. I had the pleasure of working closely with Brian on establishing Center Consortium, on establishing uh, USDC. Uh, he's now at the OCC and is, is I think, quite constructive about uh, how the Treasury Department can work with the crypto industry, how it can work with leading fintechs that are innovating in this space. He's published extensively publicly uh, on the private sector leading in the digital dollar space. And so I think uh, you, you had that there. And as we saw yesterday, I mean, there's certainly more uh, willingness to hear about this, at least uh, in Senate committees. Garrick, I want to talk more about regulatory hurdles that might remain and the travel rule, FATF, that just went into effect this month. Um, where sender and recipients need to be identified. How do you think um, stablecoins will be complying with this? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, regulation. <laughs> Jeremy, have we talked about regulation through the years? Uh, <laughs> yeah, never. yeah, it never comes up, does it? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I guess, you know, let me step back from anything specific and just say, you know, I, I think regulators, you know, have been criticized through the years for various things, perhaps rightfully so in some cases. I think oftentimes they're some of the more unsung heroes in the story of cryptocurrency. I think there's been a lot of things that have been done well um, in, in certain jurisdictions in particular. Um, but, but uh, you know, all this is still evolving. And, and the thing with regulation like the travel rule is, um, look, as cryptocurrency, and I've said this for years, as it grows in use and becomes more important, more integrated with the traditional financial system as we're seeing, it's inevitable we're going to see it more regulated in some way, shape, or form. And I think designing regulations that allow innovation, of course, to continue to foster and occur, uh, but also safeguard, you know, financial stability and consumers and so on is obviously very important. So, uh, you know, things like the travel rule, I think the positive way of looking at it is that you know, this is a way in which uh, regulators are comfortable with crypto assets continuing to play in this space. You still hear people like Jim Rogers just last week, uh, co-founder with George Soros of the Quantum Fund, expressing this view that, look, if cryptocurrencies ever get too big, regulators will simply eliminate them. And I think things like the travel rule, the fact that we have the Chicago's futures markets, the fact that we have an evolving body of regulations, it's allowing cryptocurrency space to play and grow. Uh, is really the counter argument to that view expressed by Rogers, uh, which is shared, I know, by other institutional investors who are kind of sitting on the sidelines because they think the end game for crypto is that it simply gets squashed if it ever goes beyond, you know, it's, it's still relatively small, tens of millions of users. Uh, I don't agree with that, obviously. 
And, and so I think these kinds of rules are necessary. Of course, they're gonna impact negatively some companies. We've seen some firms shut down in the Netherlands and elsewhere. Uh, you know, business models have to adjust, but that's just part of playing the game is, is my view. And your view on programmatic stable coins like DAI? Well, you know, I, I, I think, um, I, I actually, I don't think uh, uh, of DAI as a programmatic stable coin. I think of Maker as a margin lending facility. Um, so uh, effectively, you know, it, it is a, a decentralized margin lending facility. Its biggest competition is Compound. Um, you know, effectively what you're doing is you're, you're depositing and, and locking up uh, crypto assets and you're getting issued a, uh, a token that is, you know, pegged at a dollar, but effectively you're borrowing dollars uh, against collateral that you post. So, so I, I think that's really maybe more, more how to think about it. Um, but um, I mean, you know, similarly, you know, you have, um, you have the ability to lock up different forms of collateral in, uh, in compound and borrow dollars as well. Um, so increasingly these are different takes on decentralized credit and lending markets um, that, uh, you know, that, that are decentralized. And I, I think fascinating. Um, I think we're in, in the very early stages of, of their development. Um, I, you know, there's lots of analogies and metaphors and so on that people can use, but I, I like to harken back to, you know, when eBay came out and people were selling Beanie Babies and people were like, you know, who's going to go on these, these, you know, peer to peer marketplaces and, and sell things to each other. And, you know, that's not, that's never going to work for, for, you know, the kinds of commerce that, that we have. And, and those, those peer to peer markets, which is really what eBay was, it was a centralized platform, obviously. Uh, but those peer to peer markets were astounding and Craigslist or what have you, these, all these different fascinating examples. <clears throat> you know, peer-to-peer -peer global decentralized financial credit markets is, uh, you know, has the potential to be quite enormous. Well, thank you both for being here today. That was very informative. Um, we look forward to keeping in touch and seeing how the market grows.